We have touched the sun this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The Parker Solar Probe, named for 94-year-old pioneering solar researcher Eugene Parker, has gone where Parker probably never imagined a machine built by humans would ever go. On its eighth close encounter with our star, the spacecraft dipped within the sun's corona. What it found there is dazzling in every sense of the word. We'll talk about it with the director of NASA's heliophysics division, Nicola Fox, and the mission's project scientist, Nur Afi. Then we'll hear how that star we race around is making it difficult to see our neighboring planets at the moment. Never fear, Planetary Society Chief Scientist Bruce Betts has much more to entertain us, including a new space trivia contest with a great prize. I've got a favor to ask. It has been years since we asked you to let us know how you feel about Planetary Radio in a survey. Here's your chance. I hope a lot of you will go to planetary.org survey and answer a few easy questions about this show. There's no obligation, we won't bother you with other mail, and we're not asking you to become a member, though we wouldn't mind if you did, of course. But I'll be very grateful if you help us out with this. Again, planetary.org survey. Thanks. JWST. Wow. It happened. Here's the almost anticlimactic moment when, on Saturday, January 8th, we learned that the new space telescope was fully deployed. Uh, this is step lead on ops. We have reached the end of deployment, and we are preloading into the latch pads. All right. Okay. <laughs> you see people clapping? Yes. What wonderful Everyone's up on their feet and clapping. Now begins up to five months of fine-tuning, including the careful, ultra-precise alignment of those 18 gold-plated mirrors. Like the telescope itself, our coverage of the JWST is just getting started. The Planetary Society congratulates NASA and the entire team behind this great new observatory. The January 7 edition of The Downlink, our free weekly newsletter, covers the Biden administration's decision to keep the International Space Station operating through 2030. This is something I talked with Casey Dreyer and Brendan Curry about, on our monthly Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio, the guys and I also mentioned the meteor that exploded over Pittsburgh on New Year's Day, and you'll find that story in the downlink as well. The image that made me do a double-take was the comparison of Jupiter's squiggly surface with a phytoplankton bloom in the Baltic Sea. I hope my colleagues didn't mix them up. They are uncannily similar. Nature loves to repeat itself. See for yourself at planetary.org slash downlink. Imagine spending your long life learning and speculating about how stars work, and then having a space mission named for you actually visit one. As you'll hear, Eugene Parker is as thrilled by what is being learned as any scientist on the Parker Solar Probe mission, or any of the rest of us for that matter. Nicola or Nikki Fox and Noor Rafi are no less enthusiastic, as I learned when I talked with them via Zoom a few days ago. Nicola, Nikki, and Anur, thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio, 
And congratulations on the stunning success already of this this pioneering mission. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And it's amazing that after 60 years, we are achieving this. It's just amazing. We're going to get to the science. It's moments away. But I have to start with that utterly amazing, that jaw-dropping video. And I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about, actually touching the sun, as you put it, Noor. My colleagues and I at the Planetary Society, including our boss, Bill Nye, we were profoundly affected by by that video, that, that first flight through the sun's corona. Thank you. It's fascinating that just a few years ago before the launch, when we were t- talking about the mission, saying, yeah, Parker Solar Probe at a certain point will be flying through the structures that we see during to- total solar eclipses. Personally, I yeah, I, I think of it, it's true, but when when we saw it, we saw structures that are flying above and below the spacecraft. It is just amazing. It's it's kind of surreal that, yeah, we have something that we we were touching it just a few years ago, and now it's just flying through these structures that are it's just fascinating. I have to completely agree with you. The first time Noor showed it to me, I was in his office, and he just had it up on this big monitor. And I kept saying, stop, wait, go back. No, no, wait, stop, go back, go back. I need to see that bit again. And it was just so incredible. Like, I, I remember saying, oh, my God. God, we just flew through this da, 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 and and um and and go back. I need to see the whole thing again. And so it it literally was, I you know I wasn't prepared for it. He just said, "Hey, I've got something kind of cool to show you because Noor's very laid back about these things." And and I I just was again doing backflips practically in the office over this amazing video. And you can imagine when Nikki is excited about something, it is just you know. It's just, you know. Well, as one of my colleagues put it once, Nikki was over the sun at your launch yes. yeah. uh, of this yeah, mission. Yeah, frequently so. am. <laughs> it would have been fine if we had just seen those particles of the solar wind flying past us. But then, I mean, my God, there, light years away, is the Milky Way visible through all of that chaos. It's just spectacular. Yeah, it really is. Nikki, I, we were talking just before we started recording about the last time, actually a couple of times, that you were on Planetary Radio when you spoke to my friend and former colleague, Mary Liz Bender, who interviewed you at the August 2018 launch of uh, Parker Solar Probe. I know that was also when you transitioned from being the mission's project scientist, the job that Neuer now has, to leadership of the heliophysics division at uh, at NASA. Do I have that right? Yes, uh, that's right. About three weeks after Solar Probe left the pad, I, I left my own pad and I moved <laughs> down to, uh, to NASA headquarters uh, where I've been ever since. Um, yes, running all of the heliophysics division. So um, a tremendous portfolio with, with so many great missions, but uh, Parker Solar Probe providing those inner measurements of our heliosphere and then of course having Voyager all the way out in interstellar space and so we really do cover everything with heliophysics. You know I hadn't thought about that. Here we are touching the sun and at the other end we're feeling the end of the sun's influence uh, across uh, across Absolutely. the galaxy. Absolutely. It's kind of a profound feeling, you know, that that we are making these measurements and then uh, you know eventually the measurements that we're making with Parker Solar Probe Voyager is going to see all the way out there. So um it it really does encompass everything in our solar system. Just well, takes a few years to get out there. It's yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Eventually, we'll see it. <laughs> yeah. let, let me ask both of you why this mission and the goals that it had. Why was it the goal of so many 
heliophysics researchers, heliophysicists like yourselves, for so many years being able to achieve this? Because it really was the the most important question. How does our star work? How does it influence us here on Earth? How does it influence our entire solar system? You know, we've looked at the sun in every different wavelength. I mean, we've done a tremendous amount of research. So even though it was the highest priority 60 some years ago, we've done a lot of research in that 60 years. We didn't just sit there saying, well, we'll wait for the mission to launch. You know, scientists were really working on as many of the the different problems as they can. And we'd sent missions in as far as the planet Mercury, but we'd never been able to travel through that region where sort of all of this physics is taking place. All the secrets are kind of kept of the star. And it just took that long to get technology to be able to allow us to do that mission. So it remained the highest priority because it was a question that really could not be answered or a set of questions that really could not be answered without this daring mission. You know, it's like looking out of your window and and you know, you can see largely what the weather is like, but you don't know the temperature, you don't know how hard the wind is blowing until you go out into that environment. These problems we are dealing with are not easy problems at all. They are extremely challenging. As Nikki said, if you don't really go to the source where they, they, they occur, we will not get much insight into what is going. Because if you take the solar wind, for instance, when it leaves the sun, it propagates to Earth and beyond. It gets processed along the way. And by the time it, reach, it reaches Earth, all the, the signatures of, of the physical processes that gave it birth and accelerated it to very high speeds, they are all erased by the journey. There is also another side to Parker Solar Probe, which is usually we don't talk much about it, but it's extremely important as well. Remember in the late 60s, early 70s, when we landed men on the moon, that was a huge achievement. The achievement is on the technology side, basically that opened the gate wide open to space exploration. And we visited all the planets, maybe moons, and the only object in the universe that we did not visit yet is a star. We are doing it with Parker Solar Probe now, and that is not an easy thing to do. Our sun is no more than just a run-of-the-mill middling star, right? And we know, of course, that there are trillions, if not hundreds of trillions of them, across the universe. So I assume that we are learning far more about how all of them work by studying the one that happens to be in our neighborhood. Yes, absolutely. I joke with Paul Hertz, who's the uh, head of astrophysics all the time, that, you know, the sun is a star too. He's always jealous because we have so many photons coming from our star <laughs> and the ones that he looks at, uh, the very photon challenge. This is the one that we can go up and visit. And even though, as Noor correctly said, it's incredibly hard to go and visit this star. It's a lot easier to visit this star than to visit the next one. And so, you know, we we really are doing everything we can to, to learn about and characterize and fully understand our star and then use it to help understand other stars. You know, we know that other stars in in other stellar systems, we know that they have flares, we know that they have storms, you know, we know that there's some, some similarities. As you say, our star is an average star. It's kind of right in the middle of that sequence. And so, yes, totally uh, applicable to, to what we're doing to other astrophysics and other stellar systems. There's an interesting point made on the mission website, which, of course, we will link to the uh, Johns Hopkins University uh, Applied Physics Laboratory website and also NASA resources and our own Parker Solar Probe pages at uh, at planetary.org. This interesting point is made that 
Of course, at least at this point, maybe this will change in the coming years. But right now, the only star we know of that has been able to support life on the planets that surround it is the same one that you're visiting right now. So it sounds like there's a possibly at least an astrobiology element to this mission. Absolutely. Studying the sun up close and understand how it interacts with its planetary system, and in particular the habitability zone, which is our Earth here, it is extremely important because once we understand how the sun interacts with the Earth and the other planets, we may actually get insights into other planetary systems in the universe and figure out which ones probably can have um, habitability zone that can harbor life. And as you mentioned earlier, there are trillions and trillions of galaxies, and obviously each galaxy has trillions of stars in them, and many of them has planetary systems around them. The big question is, are we alone in the universe? Personally, my instinct says probably we are not. Why should we be the exception? But we, 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 might, we might be. But there are big possibilities there that is life there. And um, coming back to the sun, as Nikki was saying earlier, understanding how the sun works and how it affects us here on Earth, it's crucial to astrophysics, to everything we study in the universe. And let me say one more thing. Usually when we talk, uh, talk about the sun and how its influence on us here on Earth, we usually have probably a negative connotation to it. That is, space weather can affect space systems, affects us, the, the power grid and all that. But actually it has a positive side that we often don't talk about. Without the solar activity, that is flares and CMEs, life may not have kicked off on Earth. Huh. That activity was necessary to kick off life on Earth here. You're going to have to go further into that because I have always assumed, I mean, we, we talk now about those red dwarf stars, which are extremely active and that that may interfere with uh, the generation of life in those other solar systems. How does a solar flare, something that can cause such havoc, how might that have contributed to uh, the start of life on Earth? When you have solar flares and CMEs, they bring all the isotopes to uh, to, to the Earth, Earth system, oh. and that actually helps helps kick off the chemistry in the atmosphere, but mainly in the in the oceans, and that's what's crucial to uh, kicking off life out there. And there is research in this that's saying without probably the solar activity, we probably life would not have existed on Earth. Hmm. When I hear these bits of this ongoing story, the study of our own star. I, I cannot help but thinking of the scientists and observers, perhaps across all of human history, who've been looking up at it in wonder, hopefully not staring right at it. George Ellery Hale is a great example. I mean, he's mostly known for building the biggest telescopes of his day, but his own research, his lifelong fascination was the sun and I cannot help but think of how much he would have he would love the work that you are doing with Parker Solar Probe in coordination with all of this other great science that that is underway. Nikki, do you, do you ever think about that? Oh, actually I do. I mean, I often describe um, you know, heliophysics is a is a somewhat new term to describe what we do. I often say probably it's the oldest branch of science because the hmm. first people looked up at the sun and thought, I wonder what that is. And they knew it had a profound effect on what they were doing, even though they may not understand it. And so that that sort of sense of wonder of this 
this thing in the sky that is actually determining our quality of life here on Earth. It just really, to me, makes us the oldest branch of science. I hope that Parker Solar Probe can keep this up for many, many more encounters. I know it has to be a very difficult environment, but my goodness, those engineers on the mission have certainly served all of us well, and especially you, the scientists who are now revealing our star to us. Thank you so much for this conversation, and best of continued successes as Parker Solar Probe continues its work. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. And and the goal, I think, is to make a Parker Solar Probe a mission for the ages. We want people to be working on Parker Solar Probe 20, 30, 40 years from now. Absolutely. Don't forget, it's the coolest, hottest mission under the sun. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Nikki Fox of NASA and Noor Rafi, project scientists for the Parker Solar Probe mission. Our complete conversation is on this week's episode page at planetary.org slash radio. Here's just a sample of the exciting discoveries we talked about. They are called switchbacks. So switchbacks, that was something that we were not expecting. The very first orbit, we saw those switchbacks. I remember being at the AGU meeting, uh, American Geophysical Union meeting, standing room only packed. And it was the first few bits of data that we had because we'd only just got this data down. So it was literally hot off the press. I remember this particular plot being shown and it just showed the magnetic field line. It's a, it's a simple plot. It's a black and white line plot. And you could hear audible gasps in the room <laughs> because A, it's the first time you're actually seeing the sun's magnetic field up close. And so that's, you know, that's kind of a powerful moment as well. But just seeing how dynamic it was because, you know, I think everyone sort of thought, well, you might see a current sheet crossing, you might go from sort of above to below and you'd see a change, but this was just going all the time. And so what we actually saw was these sort of S-shaped curves in the magnetic field, which is really surprising because now you're, you you have plasma, you have things moving back towards the sun. I mean, if you think about it, you, you expect it to come out. Now it's going back and curving back out again. Like and a switchback on a, on a mountain just trail. Just like a switchback, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not clear how they form. I'll be right back with Bruce and What's Up. This is Planetary Radio. Hi again, it's Casey Dreyer, Chief Advocate here at the Planetary Society. Our 2022 Day of Action is March 8th. This is your chance to advocate directly on behalf of space exploration. You can learn more about this year's virtual event at planetary.org slash dayofaction. We provide expert training, talking points, and we'll even book your congressional meetings for you. If you live outside the U.S., we have opportunities for you, too. It all starts at planetary.org slash dayofaction. Thanks. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It's time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. So I have... Sitting across from me, virtually, the uh, chief scientist of the Planetary Society, it's Bruce Betts. Let me read you something. This uh, came from Steve Sheridan in California. Matt and Bruce, love what you two are doing for the space community, informing and entertaining us every week. Please keep up your excellent work. Nice, huh? Yep. Checks in the mail. (laughs) 
Thanks, Uncle Steve. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, let's do our sky thing that we occasionally do every week. <laughs> I don't know what I did in the evening, but I have scared the daylights out of planets. They are all running till the morning sky and knowing I there is no way I'm going to follow them there. We still have Jupiter being brave in the low in the west in the early evening and, and to its lower right, Saturn. Mercury even coming to play with Saturn for a few days, but then everyone's running away. Venus has already taken the bus, the boat, whatever. It's popping up and very low in the pre-dawn east, but it'll it'll rise very quickly. So by the end of January, it'll be quite easy to see, and we'll be catching up to Mars that's just kind of been chilling in the east in the pre-dawn sky. So uh, still we're splitting evening and morning, and we'll be doing morning for all these planets within a few weeks. This week in space history, a couple cool things from the the aughts, the 2000s. 2005, ESA's Huygens lander, part of the Cassini-Huygens mission, went through the Titan atmosphere over a two-and-a-half-hour period and successfully even landed on the surface of Titan, a billion-and-a-half kilometers away from Earth. And then 2008, Messenger did its first flyby of Mercury, uh, solving my enormous curiosity and other people's for what that other half of Mercury looked like since we only saw roughly half of it from Mariner 10. Two great accomplishments. We move on to... <sighs> Random Space Fact! It's like the Cowardly Lion. He's trying to roar. <laughs> All right, here we go. I think you'll like this one, Matt. It's just, it's just odd enough. I did some calculations. The International Space Station has a mass approximately equivalent to a single-story house with an area of 465 square meters or 5,000 square feet. So its mass, if you had dropped it on the Earth, it would have the same weight as a single-story 5,000-square-foot, 465-square-meter house. Which is a good-sized house. Somebody who has a house that's 5,000 square feet, maybe especially if you you know dropped it into... Uh, the Hollywood Hills or Bel Air or someplace like that, could afford to build a house that looks just like the International Space Station. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see if we prompt any of our well-to-do listeners to uh, do such a thing. Oh, man, we put the bug in their ear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of like that thing in Chekhov's ear in Star Trek Two. Oh, anyway. yeah. Oh, gross. Oof. Oh, it's horrifying. Couldn't lick an earwig in the f- eye. Never mind. Um, all right, we move <laughs> on. the daylights out of you, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I almost went to the morning sky. <laughs> uh, all right, trivia contest. I asked you, how many deep space, by which I meant to the moon or beyond, launches? Launches were there in 2021. How'd we do, Matt? Notice how he repeated launches. Because we think some of you might have counted, well, a couple of spacecraft as separate launches when they were really on the same rocket. But more about that in a moment. Here is an answer from our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. 
2021 had launches, rockets flying high. There were just a trio that have left our friendly skies, by which I think he means between here and the moon. Lucy left for Trojans, dart for Didymos. Who's three? Her golden hexagons aflame. We have JWST. <laughs> I hope a text guns don't catch fire. It'd be tough in space. We're going to get another rhyme of three and JWST before we're finished here. But was that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Lucy Dart and JWST and uh, Dart includes a, uh, another spacecraft uh, along with the main spacecraft and uh, Italian CubeSat. Here's our winner, Joseph Ladd. Congratulations, Joseph. First time winner. He has been listening and entering for over five years. I believe he's also a, a proud member of the society. He's in Nevada. He says, I found three. Sure enough, Lucy Dart, JWST. Hope I'm not missing any. He also adds, looking forward to the day of action, as are we all, uh, Joseph. So I guess he'll be joining in uh, where people can learn about that uh, day of advocacy for space exploration at planetary.org slash day of action. All one word. Thanks for uh, allowing me to uh, throw that in there, Joseph. Uh, he's going to get one of those 2022 International Space Station wall calendars that we've been talking about. Wear it proudly on your wall, Joseph, and uh, and thanks very much for listening. Yay! I've got a new, after all this time, I believe this is a new style of trivia question. It sounds really complicated, but I think some of you, uh, like you, Matt, can probably solve it in your head. We're doing math. That's right. <laughs> We're doing a math problem. Yeah. First of all, all of the following things I will mention are about telescope primary mirrors. Primary mirrors. So here's your math problem. What is the sum of the number of hexagons of one Keck 10-meter telescope divided by the number of JWST hexagons <laughs> plus the Palomar Hale telescope diameter divided by the Mount Wilson Hooker telescope diameter. Oh my God. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest to get your numerical answer to that math problem to us. And uh, let me toy with your emotions and your mathematical brain. Oh, he's put a hex on us, people. And if you got lost in there, remember that you can see it on the contest page that Bruce just gave you, planetary.org slash radio contest. It will be restated for you there. Uh, let me give you a quick summary. It's uh, Keck hexagons divided by JWST hexagons plus Palomar Hale divided by Mount Wilson Hooker telescope diameters. See, it's simple. <laughs> oh, and make sure you follow standard mathematical order of operations. Ah, see, I was going to, you didn't mention any parentheses. So yeah, okay. I'm glad you added okay, that. Just making sure. You got until the 19th, that'd be January 19th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer to this one. Get out your calculators, everybody. And our winner will get, and this is such a great way to celebrate the successful deployment of JWST. We're going to send you a tie, a beautiful gold on black tie from our friends at Startorialist. I have one of their ties. It's uh, I got it for our Planet Fest. It's a uh, uh, perseverance with uh, ingenuity, the helicopter up on top. This one is equally pretty and uh, <laughs> and handsome. We wish you luck. Can you wear it as a scarf or a brooch or a pterodactyl? 
Uh, pterodactyl. Sure, why not? Just do a little origami pterodactyl out of that. All right, cool. No, that's nice. I like that. All right, we done? We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about oatmeal. Mm. Thank you, and good night. Yeah, I love it. Uh, with some blueberries, some frozen blueberries. Thank you. Now I know what I'm having for lunch. He's Bruce Betts. He is the chief scientist for the Planetary Society who joins us every week here for What's Up. <laughs> One more pitch to help us out by completing the Planetary Radio listener survey at planetary.org survey. We want to know how you feel about the show and what you'd like to hear more of. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.